So my body right now is telling me it's about 10.30 at night. Uh, I'm trying to adjust that, and you can pray for me that this week I'd, I'd adjust uh, just fine. What did you say, Yvonne? It takes a day for every, every time zone, it takes a day to adjust? Okay, so that's uh, six days of recovery, and I'll be, I'll be just fine. But you just, in the past, I've, I've woken up about three in the morning and just can't, can't go to sleep. But we're, we're praying that things will be different this time. This is my seventh trip. Uh, to this part of the world, and um, in fact, we can go to the next slide. This is where my trip took me this time. I flew into Delhi, India, and then I, I went over to Kathmandu, where I spent, uh, boy, a day and a half or so, and then drove down uh, the mountainous region to Hatauda. Uh It's in the Chitwan area, and then we, uh, from Hatauda took the bus to Damak. That was the overnight bus. Uh, that was an experience in and of itself, and then um, from Damak. I uh, went over to Siliguri, and then I flew back to Delhi and and flew out, uh, went out east, went out west to the uh, to home. And uh, this is my seventh trip. And uh, my custom has always been, as I come back, I've always come back on a Saturday. I've always preached on Sunday, and uh, just want to preach from the overflow of what what I learned. And and as I board my flight home, I always regret that decision. I'm like, oh, what? Why am I doing this? Um, because I'm, I'm wiped out, exhausted, experienced so much, just longing to get back to the comforts of home. And yet, uh, I, I do know that rather than sleeping, was forced to kind of sit down and take all my experiences and just say, write something out. Uh, but I know it's worth it. Um, as I, I know that you'll, you'll be encouraged by, by what I learned today. Uh, now, one of the things that I've always done, I've just said, you know, I've gone with an open heart and just said, God, what, what would you teach me in this trip that you impress upon my heart that I might, might bring back to you all to be an encouragement to you? And, and so what, what it's done is made my trips always a devotional experience. Um, just kind of really saying, God, you know, what, what, what would you teach me that we need to learn at, at Rock Valley Bible Church? Um, and uh, and I just just come this morning. It didn't didn't take long for me on my trip to figure out what it is that I was learning because on my first day, we went um, right here to a, a place. This is this is just a normal, a typical house in Kathmandu. It's uh, I don't even know whether it's north, south, east, or west because when you when you drive in Kathmandu, you're just kind of weaving around. I have no idea where this is, but somewhere in in Kathmandu, it's uh, a children's home. Um, they call it Bauda, filled with the children from, from this Bauda area, which is up near Tibet. All the children here at this place, and I'm not sure how many they were, maybe about 20 kids, maybe 18 kids. They're taken from, uh, just basically abandoned children, uh, taken from uh, the more the Tibetan border. And, and this is kind of a newer house, and they're all much, much younger. Uh, and they have some older kids there who are shepherding them and helping the uh, adults there. Um, but... But the thing I learned when I went there was the, the thing that God continued to press on my mind when I, when I was there is, is, is this, is that God doesn't need us. My message this morning is entitled, Building His Church, as Jesus promised to do. And in that prom, process, He doesn't need us. You know, we Americans can be so arrogant, thinking like, oh, the world needs us, they don't need Jesus, and so we've got to go and save the world. Um, that's just not the case. God doesn't need us. Because uh, we, we landed, and uh, as soon as I landed in Kathmandu, about 9 o'clock, we went right right to this place, and the, they just they rent this this house. 
up there. And uh, among some of the older children were brother and sister named Stephen and Kipa. And so we can go to the next next slide. There they are. Uh, Kipa, she's like about 22, maybe. Stephen's about 17. And uh, they are from Tibet. Uh, I think they both grew up in different orphanages, but now they're old enough even to help with this orphanage. And uh, boy, I tell you, especially Kipa, she's very gifted in languages, very gifted in compassion just with the kids. And they had just returned that previous day. So I got there, I don't even know, Thursday maybe. And uh, they had just returned that Wednesday uh, to a trip that their youth group had done. And I wrote about this, so you, you might, if you've read my emails, you, you know about them. But I, I was just blown away by these kids. Unlike our missions trips, or our, our kids go out for the United States, they went on a missions trip to unreached people groups. Now, we always hear about that in America, about reaching the unreached people groups. Well, these kids went to the unreached people groups, particularly Tibetan-speaking unreached people groups. Now, for us, it's, it's hard to do that. So we want to go to unreached people groups. We've got we to gotta go and learn their primitive cultures, and learn their, but they're like in the culture. And so they, they went there, and I was so impacted by them that I want to tell you their story a little bit, that they and six other young people from the church um, went out. They'd been gone for about uh, three weeks. And, uh, and so um, I, I asked them what their, youth, what their trip was about. And first they took a, a bus ride. I'm not sure, like a six or seven hour bus ride. And then when they got to the top of the hill, then they took a Jeep ride another four hours to their launching point. Now, when you think about a, a bus ride, and then when they're launching point, then they walked to these villages, and they walked, whatever, six or seven hours a day to visit some 13 villages and uh, told them about, about Christ. Now, when you think about a bus ride, your perception might be different. I got a picture here of their, uh, the bus. They, they talked about getting stuck on several occasions because apparently the rains had come or something or they're up in the mountains and they got stuck. And the reason why they got a picture of their bus is because it got stuck, so everyone's out. A lot of people are back pushing it up, and so they... You hear there's the Road King bus there that they took. And so they're like pushing this. And then they got to a place and they took a, a Jeep to where they were going. And then they, um, they began walking. And I got another picture of them here walking. And here, uh, I don't know if this is starting out or where they are, but they all got their packs. You can see the guy with his guitar. Uh, they got tracks in, in the back of their packs here. And they're talking, we're talking walking uh, seven or eight hours to these villages. Um, Thirteen of them. Now, some of these had a church in them. I don't know how many, but I sense maybe two or three had churches in them. Some of them had a believing family or two or three in some of these villages, and some of them had no believers at all. And uh, so they went and they, they visited these places. And as they arrived in these villages, basically they, they shared the gospel with them. They uh, would sing songs together. They would um, uh, perform a drama that depicts the, the story of Jesus. Um, they shared their testimonies. They handed out tracts. They preached the gospel to the, the people who were there. And uh, in all, they said that ten people responded to Christ. Uh, one of the things that Stephanus, is his name, uh, told me, is he says, Isaiah 50, 52, verse 7 is really true. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And um, that's what they felt their, their trip was and just how, how they went and they were, bringing, they were bringing good news. 
Um, in fact, I think I got a, another picture of them at the, the top of the mountain. These are the kind of mountains that they walked up to get to these places. Now, um, one of the things that really impressed me when they spoke is how hard this trip was for them, both physically and, and spiritually. They, physically, they talked about how high these mountains were. And um, I, I've, got, I've got about 15 minutes of video of them just telling this story. And so I, I listened to it again on the plane as I, as I watched this. And, and they, every time they said, oh, so very hard. And we, we went up to the village and we kept walking, but it nev- we, we never came to that village because mountains are huge. They said, oh, we're going up hills like this. And, and they always, about 70 degrees, they always said, oh, we're going up hills like this. It was so hard. It's so hard. They talked about, you know, if they would stumble and take a misstep on their, on their path, they would fall down so far is the trip that, that they were taking, how hard it was physically. And they said their hiking days were, were long and hard. And, and they talked about one place where they went where there was a forest fire and there were no trees to help them. And so the shade, so the sun was hot, they said. They were little food or water sometimes going up and seven to eight hours of uh, hiking just up and sometimes down and up and down to these villages which are, are very remote. And uh, when they arrived, their accommodations were difficult. Uh, they, they said food was different because up in the mountains they're up near Tibet, they eat different foods than they eat in Kathmandu. In Kathmandu, they have dalbat every day. I imagine they've dabbled up there, but maybe they talked about how their foods were a little bit different. It was a little harder for them. I know for me, it's harder when you, you go and in your way and your food is different. It was hard for me. Um, they said the food was different. <clears throat> Sometimes there were no hotels in the town and they had to sleep outside. That's where they slept. And they said sometimes there were no toilets. I mean, these are mountain villages and a lot, a lot of times they don't even know about sanitation. That they... They said to walk away and use nature and then come back. It was, it was hard for them. And, and during the night, they said it was often very cold because you're up there on the mountains. While hiking up, up the hills, you're in the sun, you're really hot. Then the sun goes down and it gets really cold. And so they went from the extremes of, of hot and cold. And, and there's no way that their supplies were enough to keep them comfortable. So they're loaded down with tracks, musical instruments. They weren't loaded down with a lot of comforts of life. You know, Ivan and I have been reading a lot about long-distance hiking. And uh, we've read probably three or four books on uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail. We read a book recently about a guy who walked the Pacific Coast Trail, basically walked from Mexico up through Oregon, up to Washington, and up to Canada. And we're like, wow, and this is amazing. But you know what? These guys kind of put those guys to shame what they did in terms of the strenuousness of their hike. And we're thinking about anything, any kind of long distance hike trip that we might take over a couple of days would be nothing compared to what, what these guys did. Their hardships were immense. Uh, spiritually, it was difficult as well because they, they talked about um, just trusting the Lord in all things. Just going where they were going to go. I mean, oftentimes they walk into villages that didn't know about Christ, didn't even have a contact there. And God was, was gracious to them. Um, but he said that the, the people that they serve were so happy because if, you, if you're up here on the remote villages, you're not like you're getting a lot of visitors. So anybody who comes, you see these kids walking up, you know, the ways and, and they were just received with open arms and they, they had them and they, this was their nightly entertainment. Um, I don't know whether they have TV, maybe they have satellite dishes like everybody does in, 
India and Nepal, so maybe they have that. But this was real entertainment. I mean, they don't go to the shows when they're up there on the villages and these kids came and they encouraged them to sing and they encouraged them to, to tell their message. And then they, they, when they left, they said, hey, come back again. And even gave them gifts and gave them food and sometimes a place to stay. Sometimes even they gave them money to, to fund them on the way just because they were glad to have people come and visit them. Their, their, their trip sounded a lot like me, like to me, like when Jesus sent out uh, the 70, when uh, um, he said, the harvest is plentiful, Luke 10, verse 2, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it shall return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. And uh, that's what they did. They just walked out by faith, bringing the gospel like Jesus was, the kingdom of God to these Jewish people who hadn't heard of Christ before. And that's, that's exactly what they did. And they found God faithful. And what really struck me also, as difficult it was spiritually, as difficult it was spiritually, these guys were so happy to return. These kids were like buffing over of, of everything that they didn't experience and now they had, had come back. But here's the thing, the biggest thing that God impressed me upon me with these kids is that this trip was entirely self-funded. No American funds, no German funds, no Australian funds, nothing from the outside. The, their home church, which I have a picture here, Gangri Church. Uh, you see Gangri Church right there. Uh, this is on a, a rented plot of land. And the plot of land is, <clears throat> boy, maybe an acre. You know, it's about a fourth of, of what we have. And the land is very, very valuable right there in Kathmandu. I think it was maybe several hundred, $500,000 maybe for this land, um, something like that. This church actually they built on that land is a temporary building. They've got these, uh, they, didn't, they didn't put it in with mortar. They kind of put it in more with mud so they can take these bricks off if they go some other place. It's bricks with these holes in them. they got poles up there and they kind of slid down. And it's a, it's a, this building here, their church, is smaller than... Uh, our auditorium here and so they have this place plus they have some places for people to stay and all and uh, this is a tibetan church um and uh, the youth group from this church <clears throat> went out fully supported by this church and also half supported by this church and half supported by the churches that they know they have contacts of where they were going and uh, what i was really impressed with is that, that god was doing this this work without us uh, you know, we can often think of missions and, and mission trips as if God is, is helpless and, and we need to go in order to, to do and, and to reach these people or, or we need to give in order, in order that God, we might help God out. But this first day in Nepal taught me this lesson that God doesn't need us. He's building this church in Nepal apart from us. He's building this church in India apart from us. And in fact, turn over to Acts chapter 17. You can open your Bibles. Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> it's just a passage that, that, that teaches us this. Uh, I want to read just the first portion of Paul's address here to, to Mars Hill. Paul had been in Athens 
talking with the Jews in the synagogues. He was out in the marketplaces talking with the Gentiles, anyone who passed by. Some of the intellectual elite of the day heard that Paul was bringing this method, message to Athens, this new message they'd never heard before, and so they invited him to come and speak. And so in verse 22, he stands before the Areopagus, right, the intellectual lecture place of the, the town of Athens. He said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. <clears throat> Boy, if there's any description of the church in India and Nepal, this is it. Walking through the city and just seeing the idols. Uh, in fact, they are... They are very religious people. Almost every week they have some kind of religious festival worshiping some god. When I was there, it was during the festival of Tihar, um, which worships basically the sun and the moon and the water. Um, and so as the sun goes down, they go out and they do their puja, which means worship out in the, in the water area. And after that holiday got back, then you know another holiday uh, was coming. But their cities are full of idols. In fact, just even look at this church building. What? Kids, what do you see up there off to the right? Do you have any idea what that is? It looks like a castle. That's good. Wait, okay. Yes, what is it? A Buddhist, not a church, but a Buddhist. A, yeah, temple, monastery. Put all those things together. It's a Buddhist temple, a Buddhist monastery. And, uh, you know, the, the children from this children's home are comprised of Tibetan people, which are primarily strongly Buddhist. Now, Buddha was a, a, a Hindu, I don't even know the history of this, but whatever, several thousand years ago, and he was a Hindu who taught. So basically, Buddhism is a subset of Hinduism, um, but kind of just part in it kind of a little bit. They follow the teachings of Buddha. Hinduism would follow teachings of uh, um, who knows what, but it's more demonic. <laughs> Buddhism is very demonic as well. But Buddhism tends to be a little more colorful. You, can, you see the yellow and the, the greens and the reds there. But that temple there, that monastery is filled with all types of religious objects of worship, prayer wheels, prayer flags, statues, idols, bells, all to promote your worship of, of the gods. Now, on the Hindu side of things, which is more Kathmandu and more Nepal and, and India, they have shrines throughout the city. And so what I did was on my way to Siliguri to the airport, I said, Joel, just along the way, can we just kind of slow down so I can take some pictures of some of these uh, shrines? And so I got four pictures of some Hindu shrines within, within maybe three miles between Siliguri and the airport of where we're going. So here's, here's the first one. This is about oh half a mile from the children's home. There's a, a shrine there and some uh, fencing there. And inside there, there's some idols and you know, things where they can place their food offerings. So go to the next one. Uh, here's, here's another one. You kind of see it behind the, the gate there. That, you know, if a worshiper comes, they can open it up and kind of get in there. Let's go to the next, next one. This is a little bit bigger, but you can see you can kind of walk up uh, on the outside or maybe they pull that grating away and they go in. Next one. And here's another one. You get behind that temple. These, these are like churches. We walk by, we see churches all over the place. They see these places of worship just all over the place. And the Hindus come the various time and they offer their foods to their gods. They, they put their food there, their, their bananas or their oranges, whatever, and they throw all this chalk on here and they're, they're trying to just appease the gods, whatever one of the millions of gods that they are, are worshiping. And um, they hope and trust that they will receive a blessing from God. That's exactly what's happening here in Athens. 
But my point now comes from verse 24 and 25. And when Paul sees all this idol worship around here, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Our God is entirely self-sufficient. He needs nothing from us. He gives life. He sustains life. He's the potter, we're the clay. He doesn't need any help from us. He's running the universe quite nicely without our help. He's accomplishing His purposes quite well without us. And Stephanus and Kipa are but one example of what God is doing without our help. As I walked through the weeks in Nepal and India, I saw many examples of this, about just, just God working apart from us here in America. In fact, the next day after visiting the children's home in Bauda, we went to Bakunde, about 90 minutes outside of Kathmandu, where we as a church have done a lot to help that church and community. It's one of my favorite places on the planet, not because it's so nice there, because it's not such a nice place actually, but nice there because of what God and His providence has allowed us to do and, and work there. Um, <clears throat> Ten years ago was my first visit to Bakunde. They're renting a, a facility in a, a small room. Um, and, and I have a picture here from our, our trip eight years ago. Maybe you recognize those folks. Um, obviously, Mr. Guskey on the left and my, my father was here on the right and an idol right there. They're not worshiping that idol. I don't know where in Kathmandu. We couldn't remember where we were, but we were walking along there. Um, Hannah saw that picture and said, wow, Mr. Guskey has brown hair. So... <laughs> And um, my dad's got a fancy, um, fancy hip sack, so that's, that's pretty good. But we were there, and uh, I remember on this Saturday, Dad, I'm sure you remember this, is that we had a worship service there. We can go there. And this, uh, the next slide. Um, this was, Dad, you took this picture. You were back against the wall, just as far as you can go. And uh, there's Mr. Gusky over there. And so, you know, whatever, one, two, three, four, maybe five rows of men over here on this side. Um, it was cold there. I was wearing my coat. And Joel, who is now Children's Home Director in Siliguri, was there. He got a big down coat because I remember how cold it was. Remember how cold it was in there? <laughs> it was very cold. Uh, yeah, what? Without shoes, right? We'd put them out. Okay, we got another picture kind of from the, the lady side. And this was, uh, you can see Bob Clinton uh, over there, and we had a little more relief. So I'm guessing, what, maybe 40 people there in that church. And uh, we visited there, and this, this was like up on the third floor of this rented place, and that's, that's about how big the church was. They had another room for, for some kids. And, um, and then, then what happened was, I, I don't remember, it was shortly after, maybe it was shortly, no, I think it was shortly before. We can go to the next picture. This man has lost his wife and maybe a couple children in a landslide. In a, you know, the, the water was there and, and uh, the ground was muddy and so she died in this landslide as she was out tending to her field or her property or, or whatever. And just uh, God stirred Bob Clinton's heart. He said, let's, let's start a children's home for these kids who the father can't take care of. He's got to go to Kathmandu and so he can't. And so I think uh, his father and, and son, I think maybe went off working, but these three kids... In fact, the middle one, I saw her. She is, uh, her name was Chandra. 
She's changed her name to Christina because Chandra is like a, a god and she's embraced Jesus and wants to be more Christian-like. Christina is her name. And so she's been cared for. And I, don't, I don't remember the other two, but I bet they've been cared for as well at the, the children's home. And, uh, but this mudslide started this children's home in Bakunde. And so when we were there, we, we purchased land for uh, a children's home, which would be children's home slash church. And we as a church have been able to do this and be able to fund that. This children's home, which I went and visited in Bakunde, has about 45 children in it now. The church was meeting in there for a while. We helped purchase land for a church building and helped uh, put up kind of a shell of a structure just to get them going. We have done a lot in Bakunde, but for the past, I don't know, five years or so, we've really been hands-off Bakunde. Just kind of gave them some upfront help to get them going. Now, obviously, there's a lot going in. I know many of you even support children there at the Children's Home in Bakunde. Um, and by the way, if you're interested in supporting some of these children, there are more children ready to be supported. Uh, I think it's maybe $60, $80 a month probably. Handles everything uh, for them. Whatever you like to support half a child, like the left part. You can support a left part of a child if you want. Let someone else support the right, right half of a child. But food, clothing, medical, school, uh, housing, everything. Food, everything is taken care of them for them. If you have that... You know, if you want to say, oh, I want to have a heart for the world, I say throw your treasure there. And when you throw your treasure there, there will your heart be also, Jesus said. So anyway, we have helped to do a lot of things. That's why it's one of my favorite spots on earth, because we have put a lot of treasure into Bakunde. Uh, but, but really haven't, haven't done a lot the last five years or so. And uh, the church in Bakunde is doing very well. Thank you very much. Um, it's just like Thessalonica or or Corinth, it is the church in Bakunde. If you're a Christian in Bakunde, you became a Christian through that church. And if you're a Christian in Bakunde, you go to that church because the only church around in this valley. And so we've been able to be involved. But I, I was especially encouraged to see the, the church just laboring fine away apart from us. We haven't had our fingers in that church at all. And uh, when we arrived in Bakunde, they were closing up a three-day uh, youth conference for teens. I'm guessing there were maybe 150 teens in attendance. Um, in fact, you can see it there. There's uh, one picture of one side. This is a, you know, we helped put up the shell of this building, but they have then put up the rest and finished it and, and everything. And we've tried to just let the church do that. It's not all done yet, but inside it's looking, it's looking pretty nice. And I think the next one, I think I got a, a picture there, kind of of the uh, the girls on that side, I think. The guys on this side, I'm not sure. Maybe there's some mixing. I, uh, I'm not sure. But uh, this is a youth conference. So they were running, just kind of doing themselves, self-funding. And here, here we go. We're doing, we're doing our thing. I was very encouraged by this is the future of the church in Nepal. This is the future of the church in Bakunde. This is the Kavre district, kind of where they, they have. And they're pulling all the, the people. And with their bigger building, they could become a resource church for these other churches around. And they hold a, a youth conference every year, I learned. And uh, these kids are, are zealous for Christ. Um, and, you know, just serving Him. And I, just, I, I really struck when I was there about these are the future people, leaders in Nepal. And I don't have a worry about the church there in Nepal because these kids are going to grow up passionate for Jesus and spread his word and do it fine without there. Now, I'm very sure God's going to continue his work uh, without us. He doesn't need us. Um, in fact, that, that's one of the purposes, um, uh, purposes of what I did pastoral training wise, this TNT. It was called Training National Trainers. 
And, and, and the idea comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Why don't you, you turn there? And I, I hope that this is a familiar passage to all of you. That the idea is to devote time to some pastors who then will be multiplying pastors who will go out and multiply their ministry and multiply it to other places. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.2, we see Paul giving his last instructions to Timothy before he uh, would lose his life in Rome. He says, You then, my child, chapter 2, verse 1, be strengthened in the graces in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul told Timothy, his disciple, to look for people with two qualities, faithful and able. And when you find faithful and able people who are also available, when you find these people, invest your life in them. And when you invest your, your life in them, I, I, I want it to be such that these men can train other men. And there you see the whole multiplication process. Now, I want you to think about Paul's involvement. Paul was deeply involved with Timothy, involved with him for many, many years of his life, taught him, trained him, gives him. But, but Paul's at the end of his life now. And he says, Timothy, you find these faithful, available men that you can multiply in. And it may be that these men don't even know the Apostle Paul. Well, I've heard about him, certainly, but maybe don't even know him or met him. And maybe by the next generation, maybe they don't even know Paul at all. Maybe not even by name. Maybe, because he wrote some letters in the New Testament. But Timothy, maybe there. And it just, it just, it's just as the multiplication goes, you get further and further away from, uh, from the initial one who went in to train. And so Paul would soon die. Timothy would be finding and these, these men and teaching them and training them who he doesn't even know. And you know what? God would do His work just fine apart from the Apostle Paul. That's what he was trusting. Now, on my trip, I was able to see this in action. For two days, I had the opportunity to watch those who have been trained by, by leadership resources to uh, conduct a, a second-generation training program. Um, and in fact, we, we went initially to uh, Damak. Maybe we can show a, a picture up there. These men... I've known them for maybe five years, uh, trained them in Nepal. Leadership resources has gone to them maybe eight times, maybe nine, ten times. These these are men who have got some other groups that are God is flourishing in, in a great way. And uh, what, what happened this time is we went there and we watched them put on a, a basic uh, seminar. And what, what happens in these seminars is just to teach people how to interpret the Bible, how to read the Bible understand the Bible, catch the main point of the Bible, and proclaim the Scriptures. Uh, LRI, um, these, these groups, basically teach eight principles. One is they say, get the big idea of the passage. And uh, for, we're finding for these pastors, particularly here in uh, India and Nepal, it's very hard for them to find the big idea of the passage. They can tell you exactly what the passage says because they can repeat it. But to say, okay, well, here's whatever, 12 verses. What's the big idea? It's a really struggle for them, but they're getting better. The big idea is one principle. Second principle is find the structure of the passage. Like where does it break? Where are transitions? Where do thoughts change? You know, maybe it's, maybe your passage has four thoughts or three thoughts that come together. It's a big idea. Find the structure. Um, and when you preach this, make sure you stay on the line of this passage, right? Don't, don't preach everything the Bible says. Don't, don't fall short of it and, ta- and, and neglect some or don't go beyond it and teach your own opinions. But just stay right on the line and teach everything it says. Um, also, text and framework. Don't, don't let your framework guide your text. Let your text guide your framework. And um, in other words, don't let your theology that you formed 
force itself upon the text to make the text say something it doesn't say, but let the text speak and adjust your framework as is appropriate. A fifth one is um, when you preach them, and I talked about this with Leviticus, travel to the original audience and then come to us, right? We're going through Leviticus. So I showed the first time we, we, we taught there, I said that Moses wrote it to Israel and we need to understand that link first and then we need to take it from Israel, understand through the cross to come to us today. And so, so understand that you don't go from Moses to us. You run into some problems. Travel first to the original audience and then think about how it applies to us today. Sixth principle, just ask questions. When you come to a text, ask who, what, where, when, why, where, how, and then find the crucial questions that are going to help you unlock the key to that passage. Because if you can ask the right questions, you can come up with the right answers that people are really thinking about and it will help the text. Seven, be uh, aware of the different genres of scripture, whether it's law, whether it's poetry, whether it's prophecy, whether it's gospels or epistles or apocalyptic literature. Understand the, the genre because you need to look at and interpret each one slightly different. It's different when you interpret a letter that Paul wrote to churches then you do what Moses wrote in the law or what you do when Isaiah is prophesying of the coming rule and reign of Christ. And finally, just biblical theology. Understand that every portion of Scripture lands within the big story of the Bible, which goes from creation to through the fall and into redemption with Jesus and the reconciliation of all things in heaven and figure out where this book is, is fitting in there so you can figure out then how it points to Christ, anticipates Jesus or how it points back to Christ or how it anticipates his rule and his reign. And these eight principles are what we're teaching. We're not necessarily teaching a theology to these men, teaching more of a biblical methodology of how to just take literature and, and look at it and explain it. And uh, this group here has, has been through that and they're doing very well. And particularly then, I went to see a group that uh, Pastor Andy threw along with a hat on, and then not Shiva as the smaller guy, and then Timothy in the background. Those two men uh, taught this other group. So we can go to the next slide. And so these are two pictures. Andy Thulong is one of the first Christians in Damak. He is, uh, um, I don't even know how to describe him. Uh, his grandfather, his father, who just passed away a couple years ago, or maybe just even this past year, just real recent, was uh, one of the first Christians in Damak. And his message is real simple. Um, you're going to hell in your sins. Believe in Jesus and come follow me to heaven. It's like the only message he preached. He saw many people come to Christ. And this man, Andy Thulong, has been persecuted, beaten. I remember he told the story about being in jail and beaten on his feet because then when he stood before a doctor, they'd never look at the soles of his feet of how he was beaten for Christ, tried to get him to change and convert. He didn't. He's been a faithful Christian for many years through his whole life because his father was a Christian. I don't know sure when he was converted, but Timothy is one of, one of his young men, his church, and Timothy is a, a faithful man. And I got to have dinner at Timothy's house and it's just delightful. He's a He's a charismatic man. He's a man just, just full of passion and zeal. He's just preaching. He preaches on the, he has a Saturday church and a Sunday church that he, he preaches at. And he's just, God is blessing his ministry to men and to other men and other men. He's going to fifth generation now, just in terms of, of where, where it's going. God is really blessing him. He's very capable. And so I watched this group put on another one of these seminars, teaching these eight principles. And even, what, what, what makes this seminar so different than a lot of stuff comes from the United States. A lot of people say that, well, people come from the United States, they come with their big books of stuff, they plop it before you, and then they lecture to you for eight hours a day. And, you know, that goes on for whatever, and then the Americans leave excited about all they taught, 
And the Nepalis say, wow, that was great. And they fold up the book and they put it on the shelf and kind of come to the next seminar is what they do. But this is different because there's a lot of interaction, a lot of learning. And it's amazing to see um, you come back in six months and you see what they learned and you see, oh, I thought I taught them that this past year. I guess they didn't catch that. So let's try this again. And uh, we go through it again just in terms of typically teaching them. And it's a slow thing. But, but the idea of leadership resources to transform these guys into just topical speakers like everybody else in Nepal is and from who just preach their own ideas like everybody in Nepal is, maybe pulling some from the Bible. Like If you just tell them, find the main idea of a passage and you, you tell people what God says. It's revolutionary their ministry. Totally different. And so as, as we change them, as they become convinced of that, and as they find out, okay, this is my text I'm preaching, I'm going to work through this text. Totally revolutionary. Just, just totally changes them. As they're transformed by that, and they really catch that, then the aim is to see them multiply that passion and to see a movement get started. And Leadership Resources has seen that happen in Africa, where basically a, a, a man there, Doug Dunton, I, I know him, he's a friend of mine, he's there in Africa, and basically he says this whole thing is starting to roll about these principles, and he's kind of back off. He says he's worked himself out of a job because in Africa a lot of things are just stirring in uh, Brazil. Uh, a friend of mine, Tim Sattler, who is with us in this training, uh, things are just kind of going on there. He got in with some denominational leaders and they basically are pushing all this training down to all their denominations. So we're talking 1,500 churches, just this kind of training because it's so revolutionary to people and their desire and heart is to see that go in Nepal and India. It hasn't caught on that much here in Nepal and India, but that's, that's a desire. But here, here's what I say, is that our heart there is to train these guys so we can step back and they don't need us. Because they're going to go and they can multiply and they can go to places that we, we can't go. And uh, here's just one example of, of, of just how God doesn't need us. Here's a, here's a photo of me with a, a man named Bim. He's a pastor of a church on the outskirts of Damak. Now, I like Bim. Uh, one reason is because he makes me feel tall. That's <laughs> why I like him. Uh, like so many of the pastors in, in Nepal. But another reason, because he's a faithful and able man. He's, he's being trained in a second generation TNT and uh, just training then who he can train and, and, and be around. And he's, so his, his training is, is going on. I had an opportunity to uh, preach at his church, but he's pastoring a, a daughter church from Jyoti Church, which is where Pastor Andy Thulong was. And this church began some 30 years ago when Simon... Uh, the man in this next picture here uh, was healed. He was paralyzed, uh, couldn't move, couldn't walk, couldn't speak. People used to carry him around. And then a traveling evangelist uh, found this man, somehow got him to Pastor Andy Thulong, who prayed with him, shared the gospel with him, and he believed. And I believe he was demon-possessed. A demon left. He was healed. He starts working. Within a month, he was in his field working, where he's been working ever since for 30 years. God changed his life, like oftentimes happens in Nepal, and it's a change of life like that, so radical. He trusted in Christ, started a fellowship in his church, and there were only a few believers out there in Damak, you know, whatever, four, five believers. He was one of the first Christians there, and uh, since then, the Lord has continually added to their number. Bim came to faith about 16 years ago when his wife was demon-possessed. And uh, just through Bim coming to faith 
his wife was healed and she came to faith and, you know, just God continued to work through him. And in fact, here's just some pictures of when I went there to preach. Some of you saw these pictures. This man and this, uh, his wife were baptized. I missed that baptism because I came to church late. I, if I'd have known they're being baptized, I said, hey, can I see that? And to be baptized in Hindu culture is pretty Pretty definitive, so I'm going to be baptized. In fact, when this man became a Christian two years ago, it took him two years to come to the point of baptism. I'm not sure why, but when he came to faith two years ago, kicked out of his house. Like, like always happens, Hinduism. And, uh, but he was, he was kicked out. His wife, um, I'm not sure how long, I think they've been married for a while, maybe 10 years. And he, he's like 32 years old or something like that. He looks, looks young. Um, but then she's come to faith and somehow then they were just baptized this, this past Sunday. And the week before, there was this gal. I showed you this picture in my emails. Next picture on the right here that she professed Christ the week before. And so the whole, whole uh, congregation just was excited about that. They, they clapped and, and uh, were encouraged by that. Here's just the work kind of going on. And, um, you know, this is the building they're meeting in right now. It's just a straw kind of hut with some, some uh, four by four beams and these fans blowing down. It was really... It's really hot, but that's kind of where, where they're meeting. Uh, it's the fruit of about 30 years of, of labor there, particularly the last 15, though. It's been a little bit more. And what, what makes me so encouraged about God's work in this place is that they're building a building. And we get a picture of that building here in the next slide. And uh, we can get that. Uh, there's the inside of the building. You see it's going to be a lot bigger uh, than the building they're meeting in now. We go to the next slide. Uh, we, we skipped a slide, I think, did we? Or I messed up on my slides. Go back to... You missed it. Okay, well, go on. Okay, so there's this nice building outside. It's got this nice cross, so I, I messed up or something. Uh, but here is the building. So you can see the straw hut next door, the tin roof. And this is just right next door. And they've been building this building, I think, for 10 years. Uh, you can see the, the sifting to make the concrete to be able to build... Uh, to build this building and uh, they are putting in manual labor for the church and they are giving uh, towards this church. Now, the thing about that, what particularly impressed it to me is that no outside funds have come to this church. I, I, I said, well, do you have any, any people from uh, America or Australia or some other place? Are they, they helping you with that? And they said, no. Um, they've just collected their money. They've just serving and give and they're, they're building this building. Um, which is, which is quite impressive. Now, it's taken a, taken a long time. <laughs> We're talking 10 years to build this building, and I'm not sure when exactly they're looking to complete it. Uh, how different than Bakunde, where we came in as outside people, you know, helping them uh, with, with the building. Um, this place is, is a place that there's no outside help. It just shows that God is doing His work with or without us. And in fact, you know, it usually is a place much like Bakunde. And, you know, in some, I think about Bakunde. If we hadn't come in and helped with some upfront funds just to help, I'm sure that they would probably be in this process here. of just slowly plugging away and slowly building kind of as they're doing right now. As they're finishing their building, they're putting on a second floor and they're helping and, and plugging away. Uh, it just might be slower. But, you know, what? this might even be a better way about us not not forcing or not pushing yourself on there when you have people who are putting their sweat, labor, and tears into the, the church. This would be just a, a great testimony as the church invests their lives in brick and mortar. And, and the brick and mortar isn't, that's not the church. The church is by, by far better, the, the straw hut where they're working in now. But yet it just shows a picture about how, how God can do His work 
about us. And when the building is completed, BIM will be supported by the church. Right now, it's not supported by the church. Um, but the money that we're given to the church building will be able to give into him so we'll be freed up to do ministry. And they're just, they're just plugging away. God doesn't need us. Um, in, in fact, the mother church to Bim's church, I noticed a sign on the wall. This is where the training in Damak was. And, and I said, oh, so what's, what's that sign about? And I think this sign, I don't know, I'm guessing, I don't know, it's 15 to 20 years old. This was the sign of uh, all the people who donated money to build their church building. And so I said, well, how, how many of those are foreign people? And they said, one. Way up. Number one, in the upper left, they gave 70,000 rupees, which is about $1,000. And other than that, and I'm guessing, you know, so I kind of add things up. I'm not sure. Maybe 15%, maybe 20% of uh, what was given to this place was by a, a foreigner. But everything else was given by, by nationals to construct the building. Um, so it shows that God is fully capable, even apart from our help, to build up church. They can give. They can find themselves. God is fully capable of raising up a church without us. A famous quote of A.W. Tozer says this. says, Almighty God, just because He is Almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one, yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. So lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would He be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is altogether God's free determination not by our desert or by divine necessary necessity. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism is to entertain that God does not need our help. We commonly represent Him as busy, eager, somewhat frustrated Father hurrying about seeking help to carry out His benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. But as said the Lady Julian, I saw truly that God does all things be it never so little, the God who works all things surely needs no help and no helpers. Too many missionary appeals are based on this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily incite, excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for God who has tried so hard and so long to save them, but has failed for want of support. I fear... Tozer continues that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation that his love has got himself into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have a true drive behind much of Christian activity today. I feel that that is true as you look upon the, the greater church. Is it like, oh, God needs us to get out there? And I say, God doesn't need us. I mean, the, the, the great story of that is, isn't it China? When all the foreign missionaries were there, and then they were booted from the country? And for years, we had no idea what was happening to the church. You know, you know what the church happened to the church when American missionaries got out? When all foreign missionaries got out? Growth like this with the missionaries, missionaries get out, and China is one of the fastest growing Christian nations today. Booming in terms of, of... It's apart from us. 
So here, here's a question. How should we think about a trip that I just took? If God doesn't need us, should we just stay here? Because maybe that's your, your question you're coming about. How should we think about missions efforts since God doesn't need us? Should we go or should we not? Here's a second point that, that I came up with. God doesn't need us, but the second point is God will use us. God will use us. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. God will use us. In this chapter, we find Paul talking about personality cults of the day. People enthrall with a man who they were following. Look at verses 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you're not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. For you're still the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely human? This takes place today. There are teachers that many people follow and give their unfeigned devotion to the teachers. Right? I'm a MacArthur, I'm a Sproul, or I'm a McDonald, or I'm a whoever. And Paul says it's a fleshly way to live. And I say that such an attitude can develop in our missions efforts as well. Rather than looking to a teacher, we might look to ourselves and just say, wow, look at all that we have done. God, look at how important we are to you. Look at all that we have done. Where would Bakunde be without us, God? And I'm convinced that God says, well, without you, Rock Valley Bible Church, I would have built my church in Bakunde very fine, very well. Paul puts it, though, in perspective in verses 5-9. through He says, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each work. Or put it another way, who are we with our labors that we have put in Bakunde? We are simply servants who have helped in the ministry and we are those that God appointed to this task. Isn't that what it says in verse 5? The Lord assigned to each, right? The Lord has assigned us in helping Bakunde at Rock Valley Bible Church. The Lord has not assigned anybody to help this church in the outskirts of Damak, and it's doing just fine. But see, Jesus said, when he said, I will build my church, he builds as he sees fit, including us on the way, including others on the way, through missionaries, through national, through local people. You know, and I love, I love the story of how the gospel came into Nepal. I heard it this, this past week for the first time. I've heard it a little bit, but the church in Nepal was not initially established through missionaries. Most world, most people in the world, it's through missionaries of people coming and, and coming into their land, foreign missionaries coming and talking about Jesus and people coming to faith in Christ. And that's how God is used. Most people, but not Nepal. Uh, through Nepal, it was through national Nepalese. In fact, until 1960, the country was closed to any foreigners. We, I could not have made a trip to Nepal 50 years ago, 60 years ago, before 1960. I could not have entered into Nepal um, because they wouldn't let anybody in. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they're so far behind in terms of uh, technology and infrastructure. Nobody's allowed in. But, you know, some people went out um, because they, they could go. They, they traveled out maybe to visit some relatives outside of Nepal and then they, they come back in. Not Not very many, but... Uh, they, they allowed that uh, to happen. But some of what happened in the, uh, the church in Nepal is that uh, missions work from a Scottish Presbyterian had come to Darjeeling. Like if we look at the map here that I started with, I threw another city on here, Darjeeling. I was in Siliguri, but if you go up the mountain, 
Like uh, Darren and I went up the mountain to Darjeeling last year. And um, from Darjeeling, we were able to see the sunrise on Kachanjanga, which is the third highest peak in the world, just right there before us. But if you looked way off to the, to the west there, we could see Mount Everest, really small. So I had to go to India before I saw Mount Everest. But we went up to Darjeeling, beautiful mountain, mountain place. And, and in Darjeeling, it's where the gospel first came. This was India, so India was a little more open to the gospel. And so these uh, Scottish Presbyterians came there. And if you look how close it is, the, the context in, in northeast India in here is Nepali. In fact, the highest language group in Siliguri is Nepali. In other words, more people speak Nepali as their native language than any other language. And same is true up in Darjeeling. So these Scottish Presbyterians came to Darjeeling and uh, started ministering there. And I'm not sure, I'm guessing in the 1870s they came. I'm not exactly sure. But this last month in October, um, Darjeeling, Nepal, celebrated the 100th anniversary of the translation of the Bible into the Nepal language. That's like, uh, let's see, October uh, 1914. It was in the Nepali Bible. It was finally finished. They had a big celebration, particularly there in Darjeeling, because that's where the missionaries were who translated the Bible for them. Uh, But what happened was the gospel came there to Darjeeling, and the Nepali church there got pretty strong. Um, In in fact, I've got a picture here of a, a church in Darjeeling looks a lot different than a lot of churches in Nepal because this is one of the first churches built as help us gospel. You know what church this looks like? Looks like the church in DeKalb, right? It's like the church that we helped plan at Kishwaukee Bible Church or the church building there and now it's where my father's going to church in DeKalb. And, uh, you know, kind of just this place. It looks, it looks wooden. It just looks different. But I, that's a testimony to the maturity of the church. It's a testimony to the influence of the Scottish Presbyterians coming over. But anyway... The church in Darjeeling was a pretty mature church. And what happened was you get Nepalis who travel over the border into Darjeeling and kind of hear the gospel there become converted and come back. And Nepalis themselves came back and brought the gospel into Nepal. They're the ones, as verse 5 says of 1 Corinthians 5, 3, verse 5, that they're the ones that the Lord assigned to bring the gospel into Nepal. It started in the east. And then it spread west uh, into Nepal. In fact, there's a difference between an Eastern Christian in Nepal and a Western Christian in Nepal because the gospel has been flooding the East for longer than it has been flooding the West. And in the West, there's high persecution. In, in the East, it's more that the Christianity and uh, persecution of Christianity is a little bit more in the past. There still is persecution today. But out in the West, it's still more in the present because what happens is the gospel comes in. It's so different and so anti-social and so anti-cultural that they they hate the gospel and they resist it there in the West. In fact, there's a difference between the the TNT groups that we we trained in the East and the West. In the West, they're, they're very much more passionate for Christ because they face such persecution. In the East, they tend to be not quite as passionate because they haven't gone the suffering as much as they have in the West. Well, anyway, when we think about our missions involvement, I think we should think of it as fulfilling what God has assigned to us. God assigned Nepal to be evangelized by Nepalese, and He assigns us the work. God doesn't need us, but God will use us. In fact, this is similar to the life of any believer, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves the gift of God. 
not as a result of works that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created beforehand that we should walk in them. See, when God saves us, it's not on the basis of works that we have done in righteousness, but it's solely by his grace. Right? We trust God through faith and Jesus dying for our sins. We're forgiven by faith in him, but it doesn't stop there. Right? Because it says that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us to walk in. I believe these are specific works that God prepares that we should walk in them and do them. He puts us in the right place, the right time, with the needed abilities to accomplish his things. And I believe also that 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about the same thing true for the church. That God will put bodies of believers in the right place, in the right time, with the right circumstances, to be able to walk in those good works to help others. I think that's what happened with us in Bakunte. To be able to reach those who are unreached, to preach the gospel to unreached people groups. He just... We didn't have a strategic plan to help in Bakunde. God just orchestrated all these circumstances. I can tell you that story another day. It's a long story. And we were just right there. And we just responded to, to help them. And that's who we are. And, and what we did, it was just an opportunity. But we don't know exactly what God's going to assign to us. But we just need to walk through those opportunities. In fact, look at verse 6. Paul speaks. Okay, here in Corinth, this is what God assigned. And this is what happened in Corinth. He says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's what happened. But Paul was in Corinth. If you read about it in Acts chapter 18, he went to that place, bringing the gospel initially to them, planting the seeds. He stays there 18 months. And then when he leaves, you can read at the Acts chapter 19, verse 1, you see Apollos then going back to Corinth to help water it, to help help disciple it, to help it go further. It's how, how it always happens. There's some plan. In fact, it's interesting. If you go to Ephesus, when I was, I was preparing this on the plan, I was really shocked. In Ephesus, it's the opposite way because Apollos is in Ephesus planting, talking about the gospel, being familiar with the gospel of, of the uh, ministry of John. But Paul came and really established a church in Acts chapter 19. They kind of switched places. That Paul planted in uh, Corinth, Apollos watered, but in, in Ephesus, Paul, um, Apollos is the one who planted and Paul is the one more who watered in Ephesus. But that's what God does. He's building his church. He assigns the role we need to play, but he can do with or, or without us. But I say this, what a privilege it is to be involved in God's work, what he's doing. To walk in his works, what God has, 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 has done. But let us always remember our role. It's a servants, And we're just walking through the, the tasks which God has assigned to us. Our role, by the way, is nothing. Look at what verse 7 says. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. We are nothing. We, he says we're nothing. But what does he say? He says God gives the growth. He said that same thing at the end of verse 6. God is the one who gives the growth. So when we think about maybe our efforts. There's nothing in us. It's God is the one who works and accomplishes his will. But he just uses us. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field and God's building. God builds his church through us. And what a privilege it is to be a fellow laborer from God. And I come back from my trip from uh, Nepal and India joyful and thankful. Uh, I'm thankful for the children that I was used to encourage. I'm thankful for the pastors over those children. Uh, I was used and able to encourage and help, be encouraged by. I'm thankful for the opportunities 
what small part we had to, to labor and help His church in India and Nepal over the years. And I'm joyful to think of what God is going to accomplish in India and Nepal. And it expands my mind to say whatever He's going to accomplish all around the world. I want to finish with one last picture. Here's a man we met at a church in Damak. His name is Bradeep. And um, he's, just, he's just a guy that we just happened to meet. Uh, Ajay is our translator on the, the left, but this guy uh, right here in the middle, uh, Bradeep, uh, went to study medicine in China. He studied there about 10 years ago. I think he was is there in China about 10 years. Converted in China. When he heard the gospel, got involved in a fellowship, and the Chinese have, have uh, discipled him. And now he just got back. He just got back in Nepal in the last couple months. And now he's working as a physician at some hospital, some place or some clinic. I'm not exactly sure. But we just we just got to meet him and talk to him. It's amazing the vision he had to reach the Nepalese for Christ. He, he went away to China, uh, embraced Christ and coming back. And he's talking about these plans, these visions of everything that he he has and he hopes for with with Jesus in Nepal. And, and, and I want you to see this is that this guy is a physician. This guy's like a, and he's not a pastor. He's not going in the ministry. But God has changed him, and he's now working and laboring back in his home village to see what, what God does. And, and I just say this about what, what about you? Do you have a heart from your people? You, uh, you sent me, a part of you went with me to uh, India and Nepal. You were part of that. But, you know, you may, you may never go, but you have your own mission field right where it is. And I just ask you this, are you a fellow laborer with God? Verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Are you working with God in what he's accomplishing in your life? Are you walking through those good works? Are you being faithful in terms of spreading the gospel, speaking to others about Christ? You know, India and Nepal are different places in the United States. We see just revival happening in these places because, you know, it's like, it's like 1% Christian. Now, there are places like uh, in uh, Nagaland where the percentage is more like uh, 50% Christian, 70% Christian because revival swept that land. Although, as I talk to the people from Nagaland, they're more that uh, it's, um, it's more nominal Christianity like it is here. But many places, Christianity is in, the, in the, the small minority, but God is working there and people are coming to Christ like crazy over there. Now, here in America, we're... Uh, Christian-dominated, whatever, saturated place, and so many people are bored with it. People don't need Jesus because they're not weak, they're not poor, they have everything that they want. Our place is different, but both places still need the gospel. People are still wicked sinners. People still need Jesus. And I just say this, are you walking in the good works that God has prepared for you? You're all different places. You're all different experiences, different people. But like this man here, converted, trained and now he's going after the ministry just with what time and efforts he has and will you be like that let's hear there god doesn't need us but he will use us as we're just faithful to submit our heart and our will to him so let me pray right now and just pray that god would do his work among us father we we do pray that you might delight to use us thank you that you're an all-sufficient god that we don't need to um serve you and help you as though you needed anything. You're the one that gives life and breath to all things. And may that deeply ingrain in our hearts and our minds that when we have opportunities to, to share, see people come to Christ, go to other places, disciple people in Jesus, build your church, give and serve in whatever way we can, God, that you would 
would help us to see that we're mere servants, that we are nothing, but God is, is everything, Lord, because you were causing the growth. Um, so God, stir us even in a greater way that we can go with confidence knowing that you are accomplishing your work. Thank you for what you allowed me to see, what you allowed me to communicate here uh, about your work in Nepal and India. And, and I pray for TNT that just the pastors trained would be transformed, that you would create a movement in Nepal and in India of people just exposing your word, taking texts, reading it, explaining it, and preaching it, uh, Lord, to the, the glory of Christ, to the building up of your church. And Thank you that you are doing your work, and we just plead that you do your work through us. You give us that opportunity, and we pray you do a mighty work here in Rockford and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.